if you're wondering where some of our regulars are, uh, it's not because they're all recovering from running the city to surf, because they didn't. <laughs> I know Becky did. Did you run it today? How'd you go? Good? Personal best? Manchun did it. Did you do it too, Jill? Oh, wow. Good on you guys. See? And they're from Acts 11 in the morning, so they're the fitter ones. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but there's this, uh, there this rice uh, event uh, at Epping, and uh, I, I would have I, I thought I, I can compete with an ex-supermodel from Indonesia who's the, one of the keynote speakers, but clearly <laughs> I'm just not the man I used to be. Um, no, it's a great event, and I'm really glad some of our young adults uh, have gone to do that. Um, um, the reason why we haven't had a Bible reading first is because I'm going to be doing that in the, in the course of this sermon. So if you would like to turn to Leviticus 4 uh, or on your apps, it'll be uh, just before the outline of the talk. Just keep that handy because we'll be referring to it. Uh, or a paper Bible is even better. And I want to first begin by taking you back to the year 1993. Some people I know weren't born then, but hopefully most of you are alive. Erin um, Brockovich, who's heard that name before? Erin Brockovich led a case in 1993 against the Pacific Gas and Electric Company. So think AGL, think Energy Australia, that's you know, the, the company. Um, the case was against them for contaminating the groundwater uh, through their operations, the groundwater in Southern California. Uh, this, over time, caused multiple cancer cases, and it was particularly centered around a little town called Hinkley in California. And so a class action lawsuit, which is like a whole bunch of them, hundreds of them got together to sue Pacific Gas and Electric, and it was Brockovich that actually got it together and got, it working, uh, got them working together. Now, she was famous not only for this case. I mean, this case became famous because it was actually a historical settlement in the end, over $300 million dollars. Um, that it cost the company. But she was particularly famous because even though she was working for a law firm and she was a law clerk, she had absolutely no formal training in the law, all right, when this case happened. In fact, before joining this law firm, she had worked in Kmart, quit a job in, job in Kmart, and had been uh, sort of famous for being part of a local beauty pageant. Right? That was her background. She had no formal training in law. And yet, because of her, they won this case. Now, of course, she's also famous because they made a movie about her. And you guys have seen it. Maybe you've heard of it. The person who played Erin Brockovich was Julia Roberts. Okay, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a great one to see. But I'm going to show you my favorite scene. All right, the favorite scene, uh, just a bit of context. This is the first meeting between her and her law firm and the lawyers for the uh, electric and gas company. Watch what happens. Counselors. Counselors. Let's be honest here. Twenty million dollars is more money than these people have ever dreamed of. Oh, see, now that pisses me off. First of all, since the demur, we have more than four hundred plaintiffs in. Let's be honest. We all know there are more out there. They may not be the most sophisticated people, but they do know how to divide. And Aaron. Second of all, these people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20. 
like Rosa Diaz, a client of ours, or have their spine deteriorate like Stan Bloom, another client of ours. So before you come back here with another lame-ass offer, I want you to think real hard about what your spine is worth, Mr. Walker, or what you might expect someone to pay you for your uterus, Miss Sanchez. Then you take out your calculator and you multiply that number by 100. Anything less than that is a waste of our time. By the way, we had that water brought in special for you folks. Came from Well and Hinkley. <clears throat> I think this meeting is over. Damn right it is. Nice one. Yeah. Oh, that scene. Well, the key idea that we're going to look at this afternoon as we continue Leviticus is about sin, but particularly one aspect of sin, that sin contaminates, right? Sin pollutes. Sin is like poison. It causes us to be unclean. It defiles us. Now, a lot of people may not think this is a big deal. Pollution, what's the big deal? A little dirt never hurt anyone. Well, it depends what kind of pollution, right? Like that video shown. Would you drink a glass of water if you knew that it came from contaminated, cancer-causing uh, places? It had chemicals that you can't see. Would you still drink that cup of water? Well, you wouldn't, would you? Because a little bit of contamination can be deadly. It's poisonous. And I want you to think that that's the picture of sin in Leviticus. It's not just a little bit of pollution. It's, it's, it's serious stuff. It's life and death, right? This is the gravity of our problem. Because like last week, uh, if you heard Pastor Jono, it's easy to believe, isn't it, in myths about sin. We looked at three myths last week, that sin is really no big deal, that sin is not really personal, and that sin, yeah, happens, but it's not that common. It was really great to hear how Leviticus busts those myths. Well, here's another myth that we're going to look at tonight. And the myth is that sin's effects are not that great, all right? That, that it's sort of localized, they're small effects, because often we think of sin as actions, all right? And, and it affects that one area where you have the action. So for example, I might have a temper, but that only affects it when, when I'm driving. A bit of road rage, that's it. All right, I might look at pornography, but I'm not doing anything to a real person. It's just an image, right? So it's, it's, it's not that big a deal. Only that's not the case, is it? Like, just think about those two examples. The reality is we all know sin is like a virus. It, it infects, it contaminates, it spreads. Uh, even that road rage example. Now, if you have road rage, it's likely to spill down into your other relationships. And the people who bear it are not just going to be the people you don't know on the road. It's probably your closest people, your family, your friends. They bear your impatience, your temper, your yelling, perhaps even your violence. What about the porn problem that you might have? Well, doesn't that affect the way you look at real people? Doesn't that cause you to mentally undress people in real life? Doesn't it hurt your relationship with your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Do you, you see what I mean? Sin is never just localized. It's never just one part of your life. Sin affects us widely and deeply. 
And we especially see that when we understand sin as pollution, as contamination. And that's what we're going to look at today, right? Now, we're doing this not so that we can, I mean, anytime we talk about sin, it's like, oh, so depressing. You Christians are always talking about sin, you know? No, no. We don't want to look at sin that, so that we can just wallow in guilt and shame and fear. Anytime the Bible shows us the reality of our problem, and sin is one of the biggest problems, isn't it? It's so that we can actually appreciate even more God's wonderful solution to the problem of sin. And that we can have, because we recognize the problem, we can have His power and His solution to fight it. So that's what we're going to do. So while, join me in prayer. And we're going to look at this passage a little bit more closely. Father, help us as we come to your word. Help us to understand concepts, passages that may be foreign to us and particularly uncomfortable for us. Pray that we might see ourselves clearly, but more importantly, at the end of this, see us in light of you, in light of what you've done for us through Jesus, our great Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, first, I'm going to, uh, before we get into a proper, I'm going to show you uh, the, the outline of these chapters so that you can kind of get a, a sense of what we're doing and how we're going through Leviticus. Now, we're in the first few chapters of Leviticus, and you can see there are five types of sacrifices or offerings uh, that are in these chapters. Chapters 1 to 6, you've got the burnt offering, which we looked at last week, grain offering and fellowship offering, we'll look at it in a few weeks' time. But here we are in chapter 4, verse 1 to 5.13 is the sin offering. That's the one we're going to look at today. And then the guilt offering we'll actually be looking at next week. Now, in case you're wondering, this is how we're going through th these Leviticus talks. We're not going through from chapter 1 to the end. As you probably realize, we actually started in chapter 11 because we're actually going to look at uh, five categories. And there's a, there's, a, there's a reason why we're doing it this way. It's because we want to show you that in, even in Leviticus, there is the logic of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which starts with the holiness of God. That's the first two sermons. And it deals with our sin in light of His holiness. And that was last week and this week's sermon. But then we're going to move to the idea of repentance. What does it mean to turn away from sin? Right? And that's the next two sermons after that. And then the atonement, what God does to, to, to bring us back into relationship with Him through sacrifice. And the final two sermons are going to be on mission. Now, I understand this is all very new. And Leviticus, this is our third sermon through it. Sorry, fourth sermon through it. There may be a lot of problems. And so for the response time today, given we have enough time, I'm actually going to open it up for questions. So if you've had any questions over the last few weeks, um, or if you have any questions from tonight, from Leviticus, from the sacrificial system, anything that's related to that, please save it, write it down, and we'll have some question time afterwards. But that's where we're going. Now, today though, as I said, this is the second sermon about sin. We're focusing on these chapters that have to do with one particular offering, the fourth offering, the sin offering. And the three things I want us to see from these chapters are, and they're on your outlines if you've got them. Number one, sin is all polluting. Number two, it's sin of all kinds. And number three, that sin is all affecting. So if you've got uh, Zach pages or paper outlines, you can follow where we're going. But first of all, sin is all polluting. Now you see this very clearly when you begin to look at this passage. Remember, there are five types of offerings. As we begin to look at chapter 4, probably the first question we ought to have is, well, how is this offering different to the burnt offering that we looked at last week with Pastor Jono? Right? What kind of sacrifice is this particular sacrifice? Right? How is it different from all the other sacrifices? Well, have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Let's begin reading there. So chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden, 
in any of the Lord's commands. Now, I'm not going to keep reading here because the rest of this chapter, just to give you an outline, will deal with four different categories of people and the, and the instructions that are tied to each one. The four categories we'll come to in the next point, but the four categories are anointed priests, right? so verses 3 to 12, the whole Israelite community, verses 13 to 21, leaders of the community, verses 22 to 26, and then 27 to the end of chapter 4 is individual members. Okay, we'll look at that more um, in the next points. But you see, it's going to take that and it's going to apply to four different categories. But the thing to notice is in verse 2, right? Unlike the three previous offerings, remember this is number 4 of five different offerings in chapter 1 to 6. The three previous offerings, that's the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offerings. There's just instructions about the offerings. But this one is the first one where you get a reason given for the offering. Right? It's the first one where actually verse 2 says, when this happens, you offer this. So what is it in verse 2? It's sin. Right? When someone sins. Now it's going to be, we'll see in a moment, unintentional sin. We'll flesh out what that means in the next point. But you see, the reason is sin. And that's why if you've got your NIV Bibles, in fact, a lot of our English versions of the Bibles, they'll have, uh, before chapter 4, their, their, paragraph offering, um, their paragraph heading will be the sin offering. Okay? Because it says, when sin happens, this is what you do. Now, the, there's a, I've, you know, that makes a lot of sense because it's talking about sin, but I think there's a problem with that heading. Now, in case you're wondering, I'm not, I'm not saying the Bible's wrong because the headings of our Bibles aren't actually part of the Bible, okay? They're just what our uh, editors uh, of our English versions put there for ease of reference, all right? The headings are given um, by the editors of the Bible. And I think while sin offering is part of what this is about, I think the problem with calling this sin offering is you might be thinking, well, this is the offering that primarily deals with sin. And if you thought that, that would actually be wrong. Because if you were here last week, you'll realize that even last week as we looked at the burnt offering, right? Remember, Pastor John, I talked about chapter 1, the burnt offering. In fact, the burnt offering is sort of like your default sacrifice, your default offering. This is the one that was done most commonly all day round, morning and evening. That's why last week, you remember, the fires of this burnt offering were to burn all the time. This was the offering that was happening all the time. And the burnt offering, if you were here last week, was actually very much about dealing with sin. In fact, all of the offerings in some way deal with sin. Okay, so it's actually, if you call this a sin offering, you might be thinking, well, the other ones don't deal with, no, no, they all deal with sin. So what kind of sin is this particular, what kind of aspect of sin is this different to the burnt offering then? Well, we get a clue actually. Uh, we won't look it up, but in Leviticus chapters 12 and 14, which is later on, you'll see that this offering is the one tied to purifying people after they become ceremonially unclean. Right? In chapter 12, has to do with childbirth. When a woman gives birth to a child, she is unclean for a period of time. In chapter 14, when someone gets a particular type of skin disease, it can be something kind of minor like eczema, although eczema can be quite serious, but you know, it can be something like sunburn to, to anything like leprosy. You, you also become unclean for a period of time. But after that period of time passes, you are to do this offering. This offering we're going to look at today, chapters 4 and 5. This is the offering used to purify them after they've become unclean. Now, if you weren't here for the first sermon of Leviticus, Leviticus, just by way of recap, right? The clean, unclean laws that we, uh, that we looked at a few weeks ago, especially the ones tied to food and what you could and couldn't eat. Remember that Pastor Jono said they're not primarily moral laws. 
Like for example, for a woman to give birth is not a bad thing. That's a celebrated thing. That's a great thing. But God gave his people back then a way of seeing the world so that they could see that they could move between being clean, which is their default position, to being unclean. And if they moved to becoming unclean, whether it was from what they ate or what they touched or even natural processes in life, then they needed to become clean again and it was only possible through sacrifice. It was illustrative, not moral. All right? But in order to become clean again, if you had been in the unclean part of the camp or the spectrum, this was the sacrifice that you needed to offer. So it's actually better to say, instead of that, you know, this is the sin offering, it's probably better to see this, that, as I said, all offerings, all sacrifices in these chapters deal with sin in some way. But there's one aspect of sin that this particular offering focuses on. And it's the point I made right at the beginning with the Aaron Brockovich thing, right? The, the point that sin pollutes. Right? This is probably the, the main idea of this offering, that this is the, the, the offering that clears up, that cleans a person after they'd been polluted or contaminated. And so I think it's a better translation to call the heading of this, this offering the purification offering. It's the offering that purifies rather than just calling it sin offering. This purified a person from the polluting effects of sin or not necessarily sin, just becoming unclean. It purified them as well. Now, again, if you're kind of new to Leviticus, and we're all new to Leviticus at this point, you might be thinking, wow, this is so complicated. Why are we doing all this? Well, remember, rituals, as Pastor Jono said uh, last week, rituals make visible, invisible realities. And in Israelite society back then, this was the way that God gave them and an understanding of invisible things, things that they couldn't see, they needed ways to, to see with new eyes. And here it comes. I know you know this was coming eventually, but here is my Pokemon Go illustration. Yes, here we go. This is for you, Dan. You see, Pokemon Go, I've read, because I don't play it, my kids play it, is different to virtual reality. It's called augmented reality, Right? Virtual reality is you put on those Samsung things and, you know, you're immersed in this new, you know, whatever, this digital world. Um, but uh, Pokemon Go works because it's augmented reality. It's taking reality, basically Google Maps, and, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's putting um, digital elements to it because it enables you to almost, through the app, to see the world in different ways. So it's, it's, you're not just here in this room with these people through augmented reality, you start realizing there are actually, um, you know, Mewtwo's and Eevee's. Oh, the Mewtwo's are hard to get, aren't they? You can't get them, right. There are actually Pokemons everywhere, and you can hunt them. You can throw Pokeballs at them, right? The reality's been augmented because um, according to Pokemon Go, you know, you, you're able to, through the app, see the world in a different way. Now, obviously, it's all make-believe, but in a sense, the, these rituals... <laughs> that God gives Israel are ways that he augments their reality. But they're actually illustrating real things. He wants them to see things through these rituals they couldn't otherwise see. So imagine a world where actually Pokemons existed, but you needed the augmented reality to really, I don't know, dancing, this is my world. Um, you needed the app to show you that the world was full of all these Pokemons, all these possibilities. That's kind of what God is doing with these rituals. He's augmenting their reality. See, they needed to learn this primary lesson, and this is what we've been looking at week after week since we started Leviticus. If God, the God of the universe, a holy and perfect God, is to dwell among people, then they had to be careful. That they, 
even though God had called them to be his own in relationship with him, and because of that, they were holy and clean by default because he made them his people, but they could actually become unclean very easily. They could act in unholy ways that would put them in danger before a perfect and holy God. And you're not going to know that by default. Most of the time, we're blind to the reality of God's holiness and our unholiness. And so these rituals illustrated that. They would see through these rituals day in and day out that sin was a reality. That sin threatens my relationship with the holy God all the time. And if sin is a reality and I am sinful, then blood needed to be spilt. And if you were in part of Israelite society, that was happening all the time. Day and night, animals were being slaughtered. Right? It was noisy. It was visual. It was bloody. It was costly. That was a very vivid way for them to know that human beings on our own could not approach or God could not dwell among us without something being done about sin. We needed to be purified. All right? So that's the place of rituals. That's why Leviticus is so complicated. And so the lesson that we need to get together, here's the invisible reality that we wouldn't otherwise see without Leviticus, is that sin contaminates. Sin makes us dirty. Sin pollutes. And it's the pollution that means that God can't dwell with us. And here's where it's different to the burnt offering. If we read the burnt offering carefully from last week, you'll see that the blood of that offering is primarily used to purify the altar on which the offering is We didn't look at that in detail last week, but if you looked at it carefully, you'll see that. Now, when you compare that with this chapter and what's happening with this purification offering, you'll see that the blood is used in different ways. And this illustrates just the extent of sin's pollution. You see, the blood for some of these offerings is collected in a bowl and a basin. The reason is it's to be used right, right into the very place where God chose to dwell with His people. It's not just spilt against the altar. The priest had to take it into the tent of meeting. So I'm going to show you a diagram just to, um, in case you're not familiar with how it was set up back then. All right, the tent of meeting was the place where God especially set aside to be present among his people. And the priests were the only ones who were allowed into the tent of meeting. Now we're going to have a look at these verses now, and you'll see how for a couple of the categories of these sacrifices, the blood is going to be used right into the tent of meeting. And I'll, sh- I'll tell you why that's important in a moment. But have a look at the passage with me. And we're going to pick it up from verse 3. Okay, chapter 4, verse 3. And we'll just read one category, the first category of people, the anointed priest. It says, If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. All of this is pretty familiar, same as the burnt offering, right? Then verse 5, Then the anointed priest, this is different, shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain, or in this diagram, it's the veil, all right? The curtain of the sanctuary, the, the curtain that divides the holy place to the holiest of holy places. He's to sprinkle that in front of that. Then the priest, verse 7, shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar. But this isn't the altar on the outside for the burnt offering. This is the incense altar. 
altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So you see, something going on here that's quite different to any of the other offerings and especially the, the default offering, the burnt offering. What it's trying to show you is this. Sin pollutes in such a way that without blood sacrifice, right? And blood is a symbol, symbol of, the, of the purifying effects of sacrifice. Without blood sacrifice, God can't dwell amongst His people. So much so that when sin happens, even His dwelling place, even the tent of meeting is polluted and affected and it needs to be purified. Do you see? Right? Sin actually affects the very place where God chose to make Himself present among His people, the tent of meeting, the sanctuary, the holiest of places, and that needed to be purified as well. Now, how do we apply that to us? It's a big question, isn't it? Well, the question I think is worth asking, and this is a very important question, is of course the question of where does God dwell now? Where is the sanctuary of God now? Where does God choose to dwell? Now, if you've ever been to a nice church building, and sometimes we do combined services at St. Paul's Anglican Church in Bankstown, you'll know that it has that front section. Sometimes, you know, there's a railing, and if you go up to communion, you have to kneel. Well, you don't have to, but you all choose to kneel, right? Now, if you're thinking that's the sanctuary, that front of the church, where only like the priests or the uh, ministers go, you'd be absolutely wrong, because that place is no more holy than the men's toilet. No, really. I'm not just saying that to shock you. Because for us today, because of Jesus, right? God is no longer present, particularly in places. He doesn't choose to dwell in any building, no matter how grand those, some of those European cathedrals are beautiful, aren't they? He's no more present there. Right? He doesn't choose to dwell in a place. He dwells in people. That's what the New Testament's point is. You want to know where the sanctuary of God language is applied to? It's applied to Christians. You, if you're a Christian, where God the Holy Spirit dwells. And use, plural, the people of God, the church, where God has chosen. So we here, if we were meeting outside where they're playing Pokemon Go in the park, we would still be carrying the presence of God. doesn't matter which building we're in. All right? As one pastor who was very influential used to say, buildings are nice, but they're just nice rain shelters. Yeah, yeah, nice sandstone church building, nice rain shelter. Right? You meet in this community hall, different kind of rain shelter. God is no more present here because of the building than anywhere else. But that has really serious implications, doesn't it? He's no longer in a building, in a, but, but in people. Well, this is how one of the um, New Testament passages applies it. Look at it. It tells us, flee from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is... It is all sex outside of the loving and the, um, the loving lifelong commitment of a man and a woman in marriage. Okay, that's what sexual immorality is, any sex outside of that. So it says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And why is this such a big deal? Do you not know that your bodies are? Temples, the word there is not just temples, as in the, the big building. There's a couple of words there. There's the building structure, and then there's the word which means sanctuary, right? This is the sanctuary word. Do you not know that your bodies are the sanctuary, that tent of meeting type idea, of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see? 
If it is true that God, and it is true, God dwells in you and me, if we are Christians. God, the, the God of the universe, who is so pure and holy, He's chosen to dwell in us. Then we must ask the question, how, how lightly do we treat sin in our lives? Do we treat sin lightly? Because God has chosen to make His dwelling in us. I mean, even, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can apply this, but even let's just apply it in terms of how 1 Corinthians 6 applies it. Sexual sin, especially in some ways, is a sin against the body, is it not? The body whom God has chosen to put His Spirit in. Now, thanks to Jesus, sin doesn't bring us under God's judgment. Thanks to Jesus, God will not abandon us. If He has put His Spirit in you, He won't take His Spirit away from you, okay? But you know what? The Bible does say you can grieve His Spirit. You can make His Spirit sad. You can quieten, dim the Spirit's voice. You can hinder through unrepentant sin, free and flowing and joyful fellowship with God who is in you. So let me ask you, how are you going with just, let's just pick on the one sin that we're talking about. How are you going with sexual sin or how are you going with sexual purity, I suppose is the question. Because this passage is telling us in light of the fact that God dwells in you, in me, we got to keep fighting it. Or actually it says keep fleeing it. All right? Run away from sexual sin. Run away from the places where it's going to be tempting to even look, to even fantasize, to even consider. That's what it's saying. Run away like Joseph did when he, in the Old Testament when his master's wife tried to seduce him. He just ran, probably naked, in his underwear because she grabbed onto his cloak. He just ran out of there. Got him in trouble, landed him in jail. But he still ran. How are you going with that if you're single? Right? How are you going with that? Fleeing from sexual sin. If you're, if you're single but dating, right? are, you, are, are you watching the way that you relate to your boyfriend or girlfriend? If you're married, how are you going with, 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 with purity, with, with sexually satisfying just each other? And at different times in life, that's hard. Just had a baby. Life is busy. Yeah, I understand. But how are you going at keeping faithful? Right? These things really, really matter because our bodies are temples, sanctuaries where God dwells. All right, let's move on. Second point, not just sin that's all polluting, sin of all kinds. Because this offering in chapters 4 and 5 show us that all kinds of sins need to be dealt with. Did you notice when we read it before? Even the sins that are unintentional. All right, so chapter 4, verse 1, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. Sorry, verse 2. Uh, we're going to skip to chapter 5. So go to chapter 5 with me because this illustrates a lot of this unintentional sin. Okay, so chapter 5, verse 1. Let me, it'll give you some examples. If anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they unwittingly touch anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean animal, wild or domestic, or any of the unclean creatures that move along the ground, and they are unaware that they've become unclean, but then they come to realize their guilt. Or if they touch human uncleanness, anything that would make them unclean, even though they're unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt. Or verse 4, if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil in any matter, one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt. When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, see what's saying? They must confess it in what way they have sinned and, in the context, offer the sacrifice. Do you see what it's saying? 
what kind of sins matter to God is not just sins of commission, it's sins also of omission. You know the difference? Commission, to commit a sin is to purposely do something. Omit, omission is to not do something you ought to do. Well, both matter, right? So a sin of commission is I am greedy and as an employer, I rip off my employees. A sin of omission is I find out I work for a company that exploits child labor overseas. Right? The Bible is clear. If you're personally unjust as an employer, that's sinful. But so is turning a blind eye when injustice happens. That's also sinful. Commission and omission. God cares about both. Sins of all kind matter to Him. Even in this chapter, unintentional sins of omission. They also need even the death of an animal. Blood spilt to make atonement. That's how serious it is. Now, in case you're wondering, what about intentional sins? Well, we're going to look at that next week because Leviticus 6 will deal with that. But the point I think is this. If even unintentional sins, sins of omission, you got to think, you know, God does hold them in a sort of different level of responsibility. But even if these sins pollute, to the extent that it's impossible for God to dwell among His people, right? If it's committed by priests especially, that the whole sanctuary has to be cleansed. If unintentional sins pollute, and it has to be dealt with by sacrifice. Well, how much more the sins committed intentionally, yeah? Now, how do we apply this? Because this is a hard one. Let's admit it, all right? Unintentional sins. Because if you're like me, i got enough problems dealing with my intentional sins. Because right? unintentional sins could be happening all the time without you knowing it, right? So how can we apply this? How do we even know? Well, this chapter gives a clue. Did you notice those verses we read in chapter 5? You know, the pattern is when a person has done X and Y, but they're unaware, and then the turning point is, but then they become aware or they realize their guilt. Yeah, that's the pattern. All these examples where they're swearing an oath or touching something unclean, it's that they were unaware, but then they become aware and realize their guilt. Then they do something about it. Well, how does a person become aware and realize their guilt? Well, it's obviously through self-reflection through the internal compass that God gives all of us, Christian or not, actually. Yeah, we know it as the conscience, isn't it? Your conscience acts upon you. Something that you were unaware of, but then suddenly it clicks. Oh, no, actually, I didn't do that, or I did that. And, and you feel guilty. Right? Something happens. That internal compass, the conscience, that's how you pick up unintentional sins. You see, picking up sins of omission, unintentional sins, is very much going to be self-monitored, right? Isn't it self-monitored? Like generally, you are not going to know if this week I failed to keep a promise. You are generally not going to know if I didn't give up my seat for an elderly person on the train. Or I accidentally in my tax return forgot to report some income. Right? You're generally not going to know. But hopefully I will know, or I, I will come to know, realize that. At some point, I'll become aware. Hopefully, my conscience, when I become aware, will prick up. And I'll feel guilty, and I will know. Do you see? That's how unintentional sins gets picked up, and that's how this chapter deals with it. So what's the application there? How do you, how do you make sure that you're not only committed to fighting intentional sins, commission sins, but also being aware of omission sins? Well, here's how. Make sure that you keep your conscience insensitive. Do you know what I mean? Your God-given consciences are a gift from God, right? Keep them sensitive. Because you know what? And I, I talked about the conscience a few weeks back. Remember I said that it's, it's actually possible to dull your conscience? 
It's actually possible to ignore your conscience to such a degree that you, you, you barely pick up any sins of omission. You barely even pick up sins of commission because you just kind of keep pushing it away. Right? It's possible to have your heart so hardened by sin that you just stop tuning in to when your conscience speaks. Well, don't let that happen, especially if you're a Christian and your consciences are shaped by God's Word and His Spirit. Don't let your consciences right, go dull. We need to be a bit more like the Old Testament character Job. Job, who every morning offered a sacrifice, not just for himself, for his sins, but you remember the story? He, he would offer sacrifices for his sons, who don't even live with him, they're adults, in case they sinned, right? It's just like, just cover all my bases. My sons might have sinned. Maybe they forgot to offer sacrifice. I'm going to offer sacrifice. Do you see how sensitive he is to the reality of sin? That's a sensitive conscience. Cultivate sensitive consciences. Now, the best ways to do that is, firstly, you've got to know God's Word. Because if you're a Christian, your consciences need to be shaped by His Word. And your consciences are guided and steered by the Holy Spirit. So know His Word. But you also need to be quick to respond. When your consciences speak to you, when, they, when it makes you aware of something. Alright? Especially when you sin. But also sometimes of, of the good that you ought to be doing but you fail to do. When that happens, don't ignore that. Act on it. If it is sin, be quick to confess and repent of it. Even those smallest feelings, do something about because that's the way to keep your conscience insensitive. That's how you can pick up on sins of omission. All right, point number three. All right, so sin is all polluting. We're talking about sin of all kinds. Now we're going to see how sin is all affecting. Now what it means by what I mean by this is that other feature of Leviticus 4 we looked at before. Remember the categories of people it deals with? Yeah, in this kind of offering. It starts at the top. Right? Verse 3 is going to talk about anointed priests. Probably it's talking about the high priest, the guy at the top top, because all priests were anointed. So the fact that it's pointing out the priest who was anointed probably means the high priest. He is right at the top of the chain. But then the next level down is verse 13. It says the whole Israelite community. Now that doesn't, probably doesn't mean everyone. So it's a sin that everyone all at the same time commits. Probably not that. But it probably means representative. So the Israelite community as represented by elders and leaders. So it's sort of like a council of elders, right? They had that kind of thing. Now I know that because in verse 15, when it comes to offering the sacrifices, it tells the elders of the community to lay their hands on the sacrifice. So it's probably when the kind of council, when the next leadership level who makes decisions, when they sin unintentionally. But then you get the next level down, verse 22, other kinds of leaders. Probably here, it's not that council of leaders, but Israel was divided into tribes and families. It's probably tribal leaders, family leaders. Yeah, that's the next level down. And then finally, verse 27, any member of the community sins. Now, the, the chapter is arranged so that the kind of animal sacrifice, in a sense, how, how costly it was, uh, how, how much effect the sacrifice needed to have, it decreased as the, as the importance and responsibility decreased. So right at the top, the, the high priest, the most costly sacrifice needed to deal with the most important things, the tent of meeting. But when you go all the way down to the individual members of the community, right, the kind of sacrifice needed is not as costly. All right, so the high priest, um, the community council needed male bulls and the sanctuary would need to be cleansed as we looked at before. The next... The third level, the tribal leaders, well, it's not a bull, but a goat. Okay, it's worthless, but it has to be male. But you don't need to cleanse the sanctuary, especially. And then the ordinary members, verse 27 onwards, it can be a female goat or a lamb. 
all right? And there's no special cleansing of the sanctuary needed. You see how it, you know, the, the higher responsibility, the kind of bigger deal it is, the lower responsibility, the less of a big deal it is. Now, what, what's that supposed to teach? Remember, this is augmented reality. It's trying to teach us something. Well, what's it? Well, it's this. The Bible is pretty clear, right, all throughout, that when a leader or a representative leader, what they do affects all the people they lead. That's a biblical view, right? It's a Spider-Man principle, right? With great power comes great responsibility, yeah? Now, a lot of people look at that and think, wow, how is that fair? How is it fair that one leader can affect everyone else if it wasn't their fault? So if the high priest mucks up in this incident, um, the whole community who haven't done anything wrong, they all get affected. The high priest accidentally touches an unclean animal. And if the sanctuary isn't cleansed, then big trouble because God can't dwell with them. You see, they all get affected by what one person does. How is that fair? Well, I think the fact that we really struggle with this one probably shows that we are much more of a product of our culture than theirs, right? Um, the, the fact is we grow up, right, even if you're born overseas like me, you grow up in, in, in Australia and we're very keen on, on individualism. Now, this is mostly a good thing that each person is responsible for their own actions. That's biblical, that's good. But Western individualism also means we never see ourselves as connected, right? connected to each other in community. If you're from a more traditional culture, East Asian culture, Southeast Asian culture, you are much more connected, your families, right? You're connected to each other, you're connected to your leaders, you're connected even to people who've died, right? Past generations, families, they're all connected. So in our Australian kind of Western consciousness, it doesn't make sense that we should apologize now for what our ancestors, white Australians, did to Aborigines. So years ago, this was a big debate, you remember? John Howard refused to do it. Kevin Rudd decided to do it. And I think Kevin Rudd was right. But John Howard's argument is, why should we apologize for something that someone else did? Not about us. Well, it is, isn't it? Because we are connected. What they do affects us. Now, if you're a teacher at school, and there's so many of you here, which is great, you'll know this one, you'll know a good principle or a bad principle can really, really affect the culture of a school, yeah? If you work in a company, a good team leader, a good manager, a good CEO, changes everything, a bad one, everything starts going downhill, right? Even we know this principle, leadership does affect people. Well, especially when it comes to those who lead the people of God. As a stern reminder to to all of us who may be in Christian leadership of some sort. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, I don't lead a community group. I dodge that bullet. I don't, you know, do any leadership. Well, you know what? If you are, by the way, if you are a husband or a father, you are by default a leader of your family. Okay, so sorry. <laughs> um, but especially if you are or you're aspiring to be a leader or, or you've been asked to be a leader because we really think that you know, this is something you ought to take up seriously. Just remember James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, one type of leader, but you know, I think it applies for all type of leadership. Not many of you should become them because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. All right? if, if sin of any kind is affecting and polluting and serious, then those of us, and I'm speaking to the leadership here, let's remember that we need to particularly take it seriously. Now, if you're not in that position, you think, well, I've dodged a bullet, that's great. Well, will you pray for the leaders? Because we are just as sinful as you. Right? We are just as fallible and weak and tempted. And we need your prayers and we need your support so that we don't take you down right, by sins that we commit without repenting of. 
All right, final point, final point. I used to work in the city a long time ago. This was in the late 90s. Um, and one of the best things about working in the CBD was you can get lunch anywhere, right? It's good food everywhere. Not cheap, but good food. Um, and one of the things I used to enjoy, especially in winter, and this is like now, I don't know if it goes, those of you who work in the city, what, what you enjoy is a you know, the kind of the, the winter meal for lunch, but I used to love laksa. Right? Laksa is like the perfect, curry laksa is the perfect winter's meal. It's quick, it's easy, it comes together like this, but it's so delicious. It's spicy, it's warm, it's soupy. Of course, there's a problem, isn't there, with laksa, especially when you're wearing nice business clothes, white blouse, white shirt, right? Laksa stains. Horrible, right? And so even though I'd always want a laksa, I'd very rarely get a laksa because I don't want to be the guy with like serviettes, you know, napkins, look like a tool. And I, but, I, but I also didn't want the laksa stains to splash all over my shirt and tie, right? So I had this invention idea once. I was thinking I'm going to patent this one day. But we should like have a fashion, well, the kind of shirt that is patterned like laksa stains, like the whole shirt. It's like little red stains, right? And so you get it dirty, you don't even notice it. And you can even do a scratch and sniff version. Just Anyway. Um, anyway. And, and so that was me. I, was, I loved laksa, but I didn't want to get it on me. And so I would just avoid it because it's like, I can't, you know, I, I can't wash them out. I don't want to get dirty. Now, why am I telling you this? Because there's a problem, I think, when we talk about sin as pollution. That's what I want to end with. Sin is contamination. You might be thinking, well, that's God. God is the guy with the clean white shirt. He doesn't want to get polluted by the dirty sin. And so he's like, oh, just, no, you know, like, ew. Right? He's like the, the anal God who, who can't stand a little bit of dirt, a little bit of laksa stain. He needs to be protected from our impurity. Well, if that's your view, that's wrong. That's not the reason why sin as pollution is a problem. That's not the view of the Bible. Because here's the thing, here's the truth. God can't get polluted. Right, we're talking about pollution, but God can't get polluted because He is utterly and absolutely holy. See, dirty things don't make Him dirty when He comes in contact with them. His perfection and holiness, His purity will actually burn away all dirt and contamination and all impurity. Now, he's like that, that mozzie light. You know those mozzie lights? Right? The mozzie, the flies touch it and Boom! They're getting sin. I love watching that. They're getting, that's what dirt is like in the presence of God, times a billion. All right? But that's the problem. It's not that he gets dirty. It's that if he comes in contact with anything that is polluted, his purity will just burn it up. Do you see? It's not that God needs to be protected from impurity. It's that we need to be protected. Because if God was to come into contact with people polluted by sin, and that's not dealt with, then we would be destroyed by the fierceness of His glory and holiness and purity. Because He doesn't get contaminated and His presence burns away contamination, we who are polluted by sin and remain so, and if it's not dealt with, we would get wiped out. So, you know, we're talking about all these rituals and sacrifices. Don't miss the point of them. They sound complex. They may seem like such a burden. Why, God, would you do this to your people? You know what they were? They were the mercy of God. They were God's mercy because He mercifully makes it possible for sinful people to have the God of the universe dwell in their midst and not get wiped out. That's why He did it. He provides a way for His ancient people to be shielded day by day from the full effects of their impurity in contact with His purity. 
And the way was sacrifice. Because these sacrifices would clean and purify them from the polluting effects of sin so that they wouldn't get zapped. These sacrifices would clean both the outside and their guilty conscience, ease their guilty consciences when their consciences pick up on the, that these sacrifices were a way for them to say, it'll be okay. Something is going to be done about it. You can be okay. Put, it, put your consciences at ease so that you can be in touch with the holy God. These sacrifices made it possible for God to dwell among his people and for them not to be destroyed by his purity and his holiness. I'm at Dan and May to come up here and we're going to get ready to sing our final song. The song we're going to sing in a moment is the song Rock of Ages. The words of Rock of Ages go like this. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, right? The old version says, let me hide myself in thee. Now, I, I used to not really understand what this meant, as in I thought I knew what it meant. I mean, obviously the rock is Jesus. I got that bit. But I used to think the rock of ages is Jesus. It means that Jesus is the rock that I hide myself in to hide me from the storms of life, yeah? Life is tough, storm out. I hide myself under Jesus and he protects me from... Now, that's a great image and that's perfectly biblical, but that's not what the song is about. The song is actually not about Jesus being the rock that hides us from the storms of life. The song is about Jesus, the rock that sinners hide under to be protected from God's holiness and His glory. That's what the song's about. We need to be hidden so that when we come face to face with God's purity, we won't get destroyed. Now, the song is getting at what Leviticus is getting at. And that is all those sacrifices and rituals. They're only pointers. They're only augmented realities to really show us the real reality. And the real reality is Jesus. The one true sacrifice. The one that was offered once and for all to purify us from sin, past, present, and future. And that's why He is the rock of ages. When we hide ourselves in Him, we can be absolutely safe. His blood cleanses us from all the effects of sin and purifies us. And we don't have to be afraid of the wrath of God. Before we sing, I'm going to show you Hebrews 9. And you'll see how this is actually the fulfillment of these chapters of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus, isn't it? Look what it says. It says, The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify, sanctify is to make holy, so that they are outwardly clean. All right, that's talking about Leviticus, all the sacrifices. But look at verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus cleans. His blood cleans. And so will you stand and let's sing. Rock of ages, cleft for me, hide me now, my refuge be. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt power sing to our rock of ages jesus let's hide ourselves in him this is the great news the gospel that no matter how impure sin makes us no matter how much you might feel guilty and weighed down by shame you never need to fear the holiness of god because jesus who died for you and me is our shield and our rock and he purifies us